when you do start to find an opportunity for technology to improve, I think as designers, we have this impetus to kind of completely reconfigure it and rethink it and redesign it in an entirely new way. Mm-hmm. But that, what I found is sometimes that creates a barrier to people. If they come up to something, they want to get something out of the refrigerator, but it doesn't look like a refrigerator, and the, the doors don't swing open. They, and I can't find the knob and the, the handle. You know, it's just I think humans aren't necessarily very patient with that stuff. They will just say, "Screw that! I'll go back and just do it the regular way." Named one of Fast Company's most creative people in business, Robert Brunner is the designer of such iconic products as the Apple PowerBook and Beats by Dr. Dre headphones. Former director of industrial design for Apple, he laid the foundations for moving computers from the utilitarian to the desirable and helped define Apple as the most powerful brand and technology company in the world. In 2007, Robert founded San Francisco-based design studio Ammunition to communicate ideas through products, brands, and their surrounding experiences. In this episode of First Things First, we talk about the meaning that objects can hold, the shift from the world of corporate design to design consulting, and why sometimes a fridge should just be a fridge. It actually started with my parents, right, that um, my father was a uh, very accomplished mechanical engineer. He, he invented much of the mechanical technology and disk drives at IBM. And, and I, I, kinda, I grew up with that. He was always tinkering, always building, always doing things. My, my mother was a fashion model, a fine artist, craftsperson, also an entrepreneur. And so, you know, I had this sort of... Um, I wouldn't say Eames-like household because the aesthetic wasn't there, but but still, every there were just was always projects, right? Everything was a project, right? Even the Christmas tree, right? Every year was different. So I, I kind of grew up in that environment. In high school, I was, um, you know, you get to the end of high school, and this is in the seventies, and and you see the career counselor, right? And he says, hmm, "You're good in math and science. You should study engineering." And I thought, "Well, that's what my dad did. I'll do that, right?" What he didn't look at was like I was really good in art class and amazing in shop, like wood shop, metal shop, right? So I went to study engineering at San Jose State University and spent about a year in it. In the beginning, it's all science and math and stuff and wasn't feeling it and decided I would um, pay more attention to my mom's side. And I went over the art building. I'd heard about this thing called graphic design and um wandered in and literally right in front of me was a display case of industrial design artifacts, uh, renderings, models, mock-ups. Right? And I, I just stood there and said, that's it, right? And I just you remember seeing like, you know, the, the flashy um, marker and chalk product and car renderings, right? And these beautiful glossy models of flashlights and things like that, right? And, and, um, and I always wondered, what if I'd gone in another door, right? <laughs> I could become a starving sculptor or something. But um, it totally pissed my dad off, right? He thought uh, industrial designers, he's, quote, they're the guys who specify the paint and it usually peels off, right? That's what he said to me. So, um, and he turned around on it after a while. But that, that's how I ended up studying design. You talk about the relationship between people and things. So how would you describe that relationship? It's very interesting, and that's something I, I've, I remember being fascinated by it then and continue to be that, um, you know, as, as a species, we 
love objects. We surround ourselves with objects. We give objects meaning. We use objects to define ourselves, right? And and so that that relationship to me is always very interesting, and it's born in in necessity and functionality. But a lot of it's very emotional, right? You know, you you can choose from a hundred different variations of something. Why do you choose that one? Beyond you know what it does or what it costs, it's usually there's some some reason you're identifying with it in some way, and that 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 sort of expands from objects into brands, right? And this sort of really very tight relationship with products and services and the idea of who's delivering them and what they represent. And so those things are just, I, I find very fascinating because it's this sort of very human thing. I mean, I found that even, even if we're doing something that's a product that's highly technical and geared towards a professional market, uh, maybe based in science, emotions always come to, to play, right? That, that scientist wants to be the first to have this really cool piece of technology, so it needs to look advanced, right? And it's, so it boils down to some emotion that they have about what they're doing and how they should be working. Could you talk a little bit more to that, the idea of how it kind of goes back to the story, I think, about your dad's first reaction to going toward art or, or design and this kind of tension between functionality and, and emotion and reason and emotion, let's say. I mean, how do you find that that plays out in what you do? Well, it, it's hard for a lot of people to get their hands around, like people like my father, really sort of, you know, understanding that it's not something that can't necessarily be quantified or put on a spreadsheet, even though we keep trying to, right? We keep trying to research it to death and and, and, and processize it and make it all more understandable. But it, it is this thing that is, again, as I said, u- uniquely human, where, where people are um, have like to have meanings, meaning in their lives and like the things they have to have meaning. And, um, and I think, again, it's, it, it, it crosses a gamut of age and what you do and how you do it and so right. forth. And what about then this sort of recent move towards smarter everything? And, you know, in some ways when you speak about, you speak about the idea of smart objects, there's almost in a way they seem like they're becoming dumber in a sense. Like, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I, I think we're, uh, we're, I think we're learning a lot about this, and there, there still is a lot of impetus to just make shit smart, right? And it, whether it needs to be or not, um, it, it was really bad um, five years ago as the sort of idea of the internet things was of things was taking off, and there was a lot of investment in hardware and development, and so it was the sort of race to make anything and everything smart, right? You have an app for everything from your your doorknob to your mattress, right? And and it, and it starts re- reaching the ridiculous, right? Um, you know, and, and as much as I kind of criticize it, some of it's good, right? I think a lot of what we end up with that's good and meaningful comes through experimentation and trial and error. And and while a lot of that stuff seems really annoying, usually it, it starts to settle out in, in, in things that are positive. But I, it, it, there isn't a need to make everything smart and to make and connect everything. Some things just work perfectly well the way they are. This sort of taking this approach of not necessarily reinventing the everyday, but augmenting the everyday, right? And sort of looking at how design and technology can improve on something, not radically reinvent it. It's not always the right answer to do so. Yeah, I mean, I think it leads to an interesting question, another theme that you touch on, which is the the difference between innovation that actually actually may be providing a better solution for something but that's that the market's not ready for and so the difference between say let's call it innovation success versus market or commercial success can you talk about the difference between those yeah. two things yeah I, I, and i think it's important right i mean i do 
you know, get critical of it, but really, you know, there are, I've worked with a number of entrepreneurs who just won't give up, right? And they'll keep trying and keep pushing and eventually they hit it. And those people are brave and important, right? To do that, right? They might start out with something that was not right and failed, but they know there's something there and they keep going. So I, so I think that it's, it's good. Um, but it does end up creating a lot of, um, it can create sort of bad equity in people's minds about about technology in their lives. So I think that, you know, I, I've come around to this idea of really understanding before you dive into something of really understanding the norms and, and the feelings and understandings that people have of it and, and building off of that and then making very conscious decisions if I'm going to break some things or do they need to be broken, not just, okay, I'm going to completely <laughs> just change the entire way this is just because I think that would be cool. I'm a big proponent of empathy, right? So um, pushing people to spend time in other people's shoes and understand what that means. Um, And then I think just what we typically do are are reality checks. And honestly, and sometimes you choose to ignore it. Sometimes you might put something in front of someone and they react negatively. And then you go back and think, okay, well, really they're not understanding. So we'll ignore that and keep moving, right? So, you know... um, but but I, the main point is to have your head up, right? Just always be be aware of what you're putting out into the world and what it what it means to people. And like I said, you know, ironically, taking that path of building off of things people understand is actually a faster way to radically reinvent something, right? Because right? because to radically reinvent it, you want to draw them into it. Right and begin them to use use it and understand it, and so that that completely radical reinvention may be the second or third generation, but in that first one, you may be smarter to put it together in a way that people can relate to and be drawn into it. It sounds like an Apple principle with schemorphism and that those sorts of ideas, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it's you know building things in, in building off metaphors they understand and can get into and and, and run with. Right, and so that brings me to the next point about your trajectory. So starting with Apple, um, your career, you know, a, a big part of your career there, and then moving to Pentagram. And then what was that sort of transition from those two places into the decision to start your own, start ammunition? Yeah, it was, it was an interesting, interesting tra- trajectory. Before I was at Apple, I had my own company, right, with a couple guys. And we started working with Apple as consultants. And then I was asked to come and you know, run and build their industrial design function, which um, I initially said no. I just, um, I never saw myself as, as a corporate person. And and actually at that time, Apple's approach to design was, you know, largely working with outside designers with the smaller internal staff. And I didn't want to be the guy telling other firms what to do. <laughs> so I said no. And it, it, it had an interesting effect. They kind of went away for a while, and then they came back and said, no, no, we really want you. What would you want to do it? And I remember almost without thinking said, well, you know, this company should have a world-class design studio, so I, I could do that. I could make that. And they said, okay. And so you said, yeah, watch out what you asked for. And so I, I decided to, to take the job and you know, it turned out to be an, an amazing decision. At the time, I was scared to death because I was leaving behind a good business. And 
and going to take this job in a corporation. But on a lot of levels, one, successfully building the design team and program, but also just learning how things work in an organization and an organism like that and how design moves through a system and, and comes out the other side intact. Extremely valuable stuff to learn about in, 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 in what today is arguably the most design-driven company in the world. So, so that, was, that was great. Then it, um, after about almost eight years, I started to feel restless. The way the company was going was not great. But there, was, there was a lot of influx of people from HP, Sun Microsystems, things that didn't really get design the way Apple does. So I felt, found myself fighting simple battles over simple things all the time and just decided I wasn't having fun. So I thought I'd go back to consulting. I was thinking about starting the company and running a space and leasing a copier and you know, doing all that stuff and was um, approached by a partner at Pentagram the equity I had at Pentagram wasn't necessarily what, it, what it's known for, which is largely in graphic design and communication and so forth. Um, my understanding of Pentagram was Kenneth Grange, who was an amazing industrial designer who I, as a student, followed his work and was inspired by it. So I thought, okay, that sounds great. So I joined San Francisco office. Um, the structure of the company was really great to create and build a business under this larger umbrella. And and did that for about 10 years. Um, worked with amazing people and incredible jobs and wonderful clients. But I began to realize what I was kind of a boutique within the company, right? With, with you know, 19 partners, I was really the only person doing what I was doing. And, you know, I was always dragged into things as the tech guy. Right? But what I saw happening was this um, maturing of the understanding of industrial design and the business community and really starting to elevate its importance and and really put it on par with other disciplines and and competencies that were seen critical to a company such as engineering or technology or marketing right you can see design is one of those pillars so i realized i needed to have a different sort of structure and arrangement that's so that's why i founded ammunition and really was the idea of Building great products and the product being at the center, but doing it in a multidisciplinary way, really sort of looking at everything about a product from how you learn about it, how you buy it, what happens when you get it, what happens when you use it, all those things, right? That whole chain that really, you know, when you, I used to show this story of I would put up a, an iPod or later an iPhone and then start to strip out all the things that made it an iPhone and it was just left with a blank object, right? And say, what do you have? It's no longer an iPhone. It's a, it's a really beautiful object. But unless you have the brand and the interface and the packaging and the retail experience and all those things, it's, it, those are all the things that add up to make it what it is. And so, um, so that, that's, that's how we founded the company. And, and um, it's been 11 years and it's been great. We're actually in the talent business, right? And and we've worked very hard to have a, a system of identifying and growing talent, and it's in a variety of areas. Early in my career, I was working with this guy, and he said something to me, and um, later on, I, I it was really impactful. He said to me, you're, you're only as strong as the backs of the people who carry you. And that's absolutely true. I've always had this policy of trying to hire people that are better and smarter than I am. To learn more about Robert, visit ammunitiongroup.com. First Things First is produced by Max Cotter. 
Frontier Media is a part of Frontier, a design office based in Toronto, Canada. We believe that design is more than visual. It's a process of exploration, discovery, sketching, prototyping, iteration, and refinement. That process can help create a better world. Our mission is to help others understand how that goal can be accomplished. To do this, we use design to create better and more purposeful products. We publish a magazine and produce this podcast to explore and celebrate the risks people take in the process of creating things that are original and worthwhile. And we work with clients to help them define their purpose and tell their story. To learn more, visit www.frontier.is. First Things First is recorded in Toronto and Vancouver at the Design Thinkers Conference, organized by our founding partners at RGD, the Association of Registered Graphic Designers, who represent over 3,800 design practitioners, including firm owners, freelancers, managers, educators, and students. Through RGD, Canadian designers exchange ideas, educate and inspire, set professional standards, and build a strong, supportive community dedicated to advocating for the value of design.